Alright everyone, welcome back. This is the Didactic Mind Podcast and this is your host as always, Didact. Uh, you can, If you are a Halo fan as I am, then you know what the reference means. For the rest of you who don't play video games quite so much as I do, um, just be content in the knowledge that Didact just means teacher. And uh, that is very much uh, what I consider myself as, if only to teach people through the uh, mind-numbing weight of my own epic and colossal personal failures. Um, But that being said, uh, this week's episode is episode 47. Correct episode number this time, I got it right. And it's not like last week where I cocked up and said it was episode 45 and it was actually episode 46. This is episode 47, the nameless one. A uh, very warm welcome, as always, to all of my SoundCloud subscribers. A very warm welcome to all of my loyal readers from the blog. If you have not subscribed already, please make sure um, you hit that subscribe button and get subscribed. It will make uh, my life significantly easier because you will have uh, access to you know all of my podcasts and uh, you will be able to support my work and make sure that this audience keeps growing. Um, picked up quite a few subscribers over the last um, you know, couple of weeks. Uh, obviously, people like what I'm saying. They like uh, they like the way I, I, I do things. So, uh, jumped almost, almost what, 40% in terms of subscribers, which is not actually all that impressive once you look at how few subscribers I really have. Uh, but, you know, I'll, I'll take the, uh, the bonuses where I can get them, really. Um, so... The topic of this week's podcast is, or was, supposed to be exclusively about uh, the origins of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, because I I realized that I'd left a lot of gaps, and it's you know it's not me leaving gaps necessarily. It's just the information keeps coming out and keeps changing uh, so quickly um, about the identity and the origins of the prophet of Islam, the so-called prophet, because what's becoming very, very clear is that um, Islam as a faith is utterly unsupportable. It's completely and totally unfounded on anything approaching a sound theological basis. Um, I had intended to talk exclusively about this fact, and it is a fact. Uh, It doesn't matter how deeply or um, or how frantically you try to look in order to find support for Islam outside of the traditions, which are in and of themselves hugely contradictory. Um, what you're going to realize very quickly is that the traditions and the uh, origin story of Islam are totally unsupportable. Now, I wanted to spend all of this podcast talking about that, um, but I probably won't be able to for uh, a number of reasons, um, most important of which is what happened uh, a day or two ago. I was like, yeah, what? yeah, Friday, Friday night, late Friday night my time, so um, probably sometime Friday afternoon, American time, which was, of course, the passing of a certain Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, one Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Now, for readers or for listeners outside of the USA, this won't mean a damn thing to you. You won't care in the slightest uh, about some old bird who passed away from pancreatic cancer, uh, who works for an institution that has absolutely no relevance or no impact upon you whatsoever. And I understand that point of view. I mean, uh, if you're in Australia listening to this or in... Well, Russia, I apparently have a couple of listeners somewhere in Russia, um, or Eastern Europe, or Britain. This won't mean anything to you. Um, The majority of my listeners, however, are located in the U.S. of A. And for those people, I will simply tell you that... uh, I I will simply expand slightly upon my points that I made in yesterday's post, which which are essentially... Number one, um, there is a stench of rank hypocrisy surrounding um, Mitch McConnell's pronouncement that he will rush to 
get a nominee you know through the process through the confirmation process for the Supreme Court um, President Trump would be very very well advised not to nominate a woman it is a very bad idea in general to put women in positions of that kind of power um, it's a very risky proposition and it almost always goes wrong uh, for every Margaret Thatcher that you get you end up getting about anywhere between 10 and 50 Eva Peron, Perons um, or uh, uh, Christina Kirchner's uh, in Argentina I mean kind of the same thing really uh, or Indira Gandhi's uh, in India which I mean she was a disaster of a prime minister in in many ways um, and was swiftly booted out of office the, the first time the, the first opportunity that the voters got because of everything that she did so Putting women in charge of things is not a natural position for them. It's not a good idea in general. And if you go by the other two women on the Supreme Court, it doesn't lead to anything approaching intellectual substance. And this is not an insult to women. It's just, this is the reality. You know, there are plenty of very smart, very talented, very wonderful women out there who have the ability to do great things, and they do great things. But putting them in charge is not a natural position for them. I reiterate, this is a, a law of nature. And when you're fighting against nature's laws, you're inevitably going to end up losing at some point or another. Um, conservatives might bring up, let's say, Reagan appointee Sandra Day O'Connor. Okay. Um, can, you, can you honestly look me in the eye and say that Justice O'Connor was in any way the intellectual equivalent of a justice... Um, Scalia, <laughs> to to utter the, the, the words is to laugh at them. Uh, can you honestly tell me that she is the intellectual equivalent of uh, Justice Thomas, who is considered to be the dumb one on the bench, but is actually, if you read his opinions, is uh, astonishingly erudite and uh, astonishingly brilliant legal scholar. Um, or... Um, What's his name? I, I can't. Uh, Alito, uh, Justice Alito, same same thing. You know, nowhere close in terms of intellectual heft, depth of thought, depth of uh, understanding of the law. Uh, Scalia remains, in my personal opinion, the high watermark of of the whole thing uh, of of the court. Um, his his loss is very keenly felt, and uh, Justice Gorsuch, who took his place has done a very good job overall, but he's had a couple of very severe, significant missteps. And the reason he's had those severe, significant missteps is because he has, in some cases, taken the textual um, approach a bit too far. Uh, there was a, a Supreme Court ruling on the question of, I think, uh, transgender so-called rights uh, a few months back where Gorsuch ruled, he was the swing vote, he was the guy who signed for the majority opinion. And the reason he did that was because his reading of the Constitution and the original texts behind it said that there was indeed a Title IX right to protection um, for transgendered people, um, and that you could therefore compel <sighs> the states and private corporations to, to protect their rights under the Title IX provisions. Uh, this is this is rank stupidity. Um, it is it, it doesn't. It may well be the correct, or it may well be a correct reading of the law. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. Um, but I, see, I I seriously doubt that you could torture uh, a law like that into extending rights for everybody. Every. Uh, Every, every time you try to extend rights out to people, I mean, have, you ever, have you ever noticed? Um, nobody ever seems to say thank you when they're told, hey, I get more rights. Nobody ever says, oh, well, that's so wonderful. I, I now have more rights. Nobody ever says that. Well, why is that? Because the, the common conception of rights as we understand it today is totally wrong, actually. Uh, a right to something, and I promise I'll get back on topic soon, a right to something means that someone else is obliged to provide you with that thing. Uh, if you have a right to housing, that means that someone is obliged to provide you with a house. 
if you have a right to a job, that means someone has the obligation to give you a job. And if you don't get that, then you have the right, then you have the ability to take that person to court, uh, sue him and uh, seek redress. Which is why, if you think about it for more than five minutes, you realize very quickly that uh, having a right to anything other than the most fundamental rights, such as right to your own life, right to self-defense, right to a fair trial by a jury of your peers, um, right to to be safe from unreasonable search and seizure, the right to be secure in your in your body and your possessions, so on and so forth. Uh, the right to speak your mind and to uh, to be heard and to and and of course to pay the consequences for speaking your mind. Um, these are all things that are not easily taken away. Uh, or uh, that, that's not true. That's that's absolutely false. In fact, these are things that are not provided by other people but are sort of negative rights that are kept back from other people. Um, And that concept of negative rights exists throughout the Constitution of the United States. Now, the Supreme Court of the United States is supposed to protect that Constitution, which it has done a singularly bad job of doing over the last 150 or so years especially. Um, There's an excellent rant by uh, Lord Razor of the Fist Clan, uh, as I call him, but um, Razor Fist, which is online right now, which uh, he, he released just a few hours ago, as I'm recording this podcast anyway, in which he talked about how uh, it's too bad that Justice Ginsburg is dead. Um, it's unfortunate, but fill the vacancy right now because it needs to be filled. There need to be checks on Supreme Court power. And for, for non-American listeners, you may be shocked at how powerful the Supreme Court really is. And you may also be shocked to learn that their power is based on absolutely nothing whatsoever. There is not one word, not one line, not one phrase in the entirety of the American Constitution. You can go look it up. Not one aspect of it in all of the articles, not one uh, jot or iota in any of the amendments that says that the Supreme Court has any authority whatsoever to enforce its rulings. The Supreme Court has zero power to enforce anything. The Supreme Court cannot, in principle, force you to pick up after your dog when it takes a crap on the sidewalk. I'm serious. Go look it up. There is nothing in the Constitution that says that the Supreme Court has the power to enforce its rulings. So where does this awesome power of the Supreme Court come from? It comes from something called judicial deference. It comes from the fact that... um, the, uh, the, the, the rest of the branches of the government have, since about 1803, since uh, the Marbury v. Madison case, uh, basically said that the Supreme Court is the ultimate arbiter of what is and is not the law of the land. Okay, fine. But that's not to say that presidents have not bucked the Supreme Court before. They have. If you go look up Andrew Jackson, he did it. Um, where is he? Uh, Andrew Jackson... And the Supreme Court, if you go search on Brave Browser, you'll go find it. He simply ignored them. Uh, Andrew Jackson simply ignored the Supreme Court. And this was um, with respect to, uh, yeah, Georgia's right to Cherokee lands. And uh, he, he was basically arguing with uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice John Marshall in the 1832 decision in uh, Worcester versus, versus Georgia to strike down a Georgia law that imposed regulations on the comings and goings of white people on Native American lands. And uh, President Jackson's words were very clear. John Marshall has made his decision. Now let him enforce it. Right. That should tell you everything you need to know about whether the Supreme Court can enforce laws. It can't do a damn thing. Can't enforce them at all. Okay. So the only thing that the Supreme Court can do the only thing that it has power over is the rest of the branches of government by pushing back uh, against them and striking down laws that are not constitutional. But of, over the last 50 years uh, or so, certainly thanks to the uh, Warren Court and certainly in the years since, um, the Supreme Court has taken upon itself 
to writing the law rather than interpreting it. The blasphemous and horrendous decision that we know as Roe v. Wade was in fact a mangling of existing law. Just as Harry Blackman didn't did not find anything in the Constitution to support this sort of tortured right to privacy that extends to um, the the female body and so on. It was, it was nonsense. I mean, he flatly contradicted his own rulings a few weeks later. Uh, and, by the way, Justice Ginsburg, who just passed away, thought that that was a, a, an astonishingly inept argument uh, to, to kind of preserve the so-called right to abortion. Let's be clear about this. Abortion is murder doesn't matter what else you think of it, doesn't matter how you think it's justified, doesn't matter how you, you try to sugarcoat it. Abortion is murder. It's that simple. And when you try to invent a right around it, you really have to torture the law, which is exactly what Justice Blackman did in Roe v. Wade. These, these penumbras and emanations from the Constitution, it's just nonsense. It's utter nonsense. It's the same thing that uh, Chief Justice Roberts did with um, that that uh, that awful decision uh, which preserved the so-called right to gay marriage. There's no such thing as a gay marriage. It's a contradiction in terms. Marriage is between one man and one woman. It's that simple. And the moment you try to torture your way out of it, you find yourself coming up with absolute and utter nonsense um, in in order to support your position. Well, the Supreme Court has the ability to bend the rest of the government to its will. And as, as Razorfist pointed out in his podcast, um, there need to be checks on Supreme Court power. The Senate has the power to impeach Supreme Court justices. Bloody well ought to start using it. Um, a more radical decision, a much more radical decision, would be for a president to pack the court. Now, this has been threatened before, and uh, it's being threatened now. FDR, back in the 1930s, threatened to pack the Supreme Court with liberal justices who would obey his rulings uh, because he had full control. He had complete control of the government. He had this, the House, the Senate, and only the Supreme Court stood in his way. And uh, he basically said, if you don't rule on the uh, National Recovery Act and the National Industrial Relations uh, Act, administration, excuse me, uh, Industrial Recovery Administration, whatever it's called, uh, if you don't rule the way I want you to rule, I'm going to pack the court full of liberal justices. They're going to do exactly what I want to do, and you all will be powerless. And um, that tactic worked because the the Supreme Court realized that it couldn't fight FDR and kind of submitted to him uh, right after that, just rolled over. Um, Liberals do this all the time. The left does this, threatens to do this all the time. We'll pack the courts. We'll, We'll put in as many justices as we want. We'll put in you know, 20 justices, and you'll never have a conservative majority ever again. Yeah, that's true, you won't. Um, Conservatives and Republicans recognize that the courts are perhaps the last line of defense left to preserve the culture and the the, uh, republic against the encroachments of the Marxist left. And it isn't working. There's no saving America anymore. It's gone, so stop, you know... The Supreme Court's not going to save you. Uh, the courts in general aren't going to save you. All that's going to save you now is a very bloody and very horrific war to cleanse the country and break it apart. I mean, that's that's what it's going to come down to, unfortunately. So it doesn't really matter from one perspective who gets selected for the Supreme Court. Um, on the other hand, his most illustrious, noble, august, benevolent, and legendary celestial majesty, the god-emperor of mankind, Donaldus Triumphus Magnus Astra, the first of his name, the Lion of Midnight, the chaddest of chads ever to chat across the earth, may the Lord bless him and preserve him, has a chance now to cement a 6-3 majority on the Supreme Court, and I believe he's going to take it, because he understands that, again, it is the last line of defense, and again, because he is a boomer Sivnat, he believes in the promise of paper America, as weak as that promise is, it's still a promise. Um, he is going to do his best to save the country from itself. And he has been doing his best, and he's done an absolutely incredible job. I mean, I am just awestruck with admiration as to how much he has achieved and how much he's done and what he's accomplished in the last three years and change that he has been in power. It's unbelievable. I, I never expected 
that somebody like that would become perhaps the second greatest president in American history. I never expected it, and yet here we are. So, um, those are my thoughts on uh, the Supreme Court vacancy. Um, I don't expect it to make what very much difference one way or another in the long run. I expect that whoever gets selected will become a uh, a will will succumb to the temptation of becoming a swing vote, and will become a significant problem for Republicans and conservatives. I think that if a woman is nominated for this post, which it looks like it will be, uh, a woman will be nominated, that will be a disaster uh, of monumental proportions. And I think that um, in the long run, the destruction of the United States is, you know, is, is, is unavoidable at this point. Uh, I'm expecting it to happen shortly after President Trump's second term in office. I expect a civil war to split the entire country apart. I expect there to be blood in the streets. I expect that millions will die. And I expect that uh, when the dust settles, you will have a sort of a, a majority white nation somewhere in the heartland. You will have a black nation somewhere, which will fail very quickly. You will have the coasts and the cities utterly decimated. Um, I expect, I would not be surprised if at some point or another nuclear weapons are unleashed, probably by the left. Um, and I expect that uh, some of the greatest American cities will be razed to the ground. Um, these are not happy pronouncements, these are not happy predictions. But the thing about history is just because things have proceeded a certain way for 20, 50, 100 years does not mean that that's the way it's always going to be. You cannot draw an extrapolation line from the current trend of low-intensity, high-brutality conflicts into the future and predict that that's how it's always going to be. Um, the coming conflicts will be on a massive scale. They will be absolutely horrific in terms of casualties and they will be barbaric in terms of the nature of the fighting so just be ready for it because when it comes it's going to come very very fast faster than any of you can possibly imagine and the results are going to be beyond anything you can imagine it's going to be horrendous so just be ready is all i'm saying uh, and I suppose, after ranting for 20 minutes about non-related issues, um, it's time to get back on track with a segue into history. Um, the Nameless One is the title of this podcast, and the reason for it is because if you look at the historical evidence surrounding Muhammad, what becomes clear very quickly is that the standard origin story told through Islamic traditions um, just doesn't hold water the entirety of the Islamic tradition is unsupported. And the reason for this, as Dr. J. Smith and uh, Dan Gibson and Dr. Dan Brubaker and many others now have repeatedly stated and have, have found significant amount of, amounts of evidence to support, is that the, uh, the standard Islamic narrative did not spring forth with one man and one book as I pointed out in my pair of podcasts on the subject a few weeks ago, it wasn't one man and one book that created everything that we see today. That, that's not what happened. What actually happened was you had a, an evolution over time. You had a story unfolding across time. And um, what, what happened, what, what the, the story of Islam that came out is one that was created in the 8th, 9th, and uh, especially the 9th century, and 10th centuries. So 8th, 9th, and 10th centuries, and then was sort of redacted back or put back in time to the 7th century. And the reason for this was not because Islam is theologically sound. It's not. There's very little of anything that is theologically sound about Islam. Um, once you start examining it, once you start looking deep into its roots, once you start uh, unpacking and unraveling all of the layers and 
traditions and ideas and uh, kind of uh, sort of uh, I don't know I don't know what the word is but the exegetics or yeah I guess the exegetics of Islam once you start looking at the exegesis of Islam you very quickly realize that there's not a whole lot there and the reason there's not a whole lot there is because it was always a made-up religion to begin with um, as I demonstrated or I mean I didn't demonstrate as I pointed to other people who have demonstrated uh, the Quran's four major claims are utterly untenable the Muslims make the claim that the Quran is eternal it is complete it is unchanging and it was sent down we cannot test the first two claims we cannot test the claim that the Quran was eternal and complete we we can't test that it's not possible to test it but we can test whether it was um, unchanging and sent down you know, transmitted uh, through from through divine revelation and it wasn't those two claims are complete hogwash um, the Quran was in fact subjected to massive re uh, revision and editing and the issue of uh, ahruf and kiraat uh, basically um, recitation so uh, yeah recitations and transmissions if you will um, these are profound problems that even Islamic scholars are now finally beginning to acknowledge. There are a couple of bombshells that were released uh, over the summer. Uh, one was from Dr. Shabir Ali uh, on his channel, on his YouTube channel, where he finally admitted in a 13-minute long video, finally, after years and years and years of denying it, that there are in fact different versions of the Quran. There are different recitations, and if you go back into Islamic sources, there are actually multiple recitations. Originally there were seven recitations and this this by the way is attested in one of the many hadith uh, of Sahih Bukhari um, that there were seven different ways of reciting the same verse and Muhammad basically said yes all seven are fine. Okay that doesn't make any sense because later on down the road um, Uthman comes along one of the you know four rightly guided caliphs I think caliph is in fact the right way to pronounce it if I if I said it as caliph before I think I was wrong but um, one of the four rightly guided caliphs came along and said um, gather up you know to to Zaid ibn Thabit Muhammad's secretary he said to Zaid ibn Thabit uh, get this original copy of the Quran that you stored under uh, um, what's the name's bed uh, Hafsa, Hafsa's bed, I think. Um, it was a wife of somebody, and may have been one of Muhammad's wives, I forget uh, exactly. There's a lot of details to go into, but basically the story is that Muhammad dies, Abu Bakr becomes the, the, the caliph, and orders a compilation of the Quran to be made, and he, he goes to Zaid ibn Tabit and says, make this compilation. Zaid ibn Tabit says, I can't do this. I mean, even the Prophet himself didn't didn't order this back in his time. So why are you asking me to do it? Why are you asking me to do something the Prophet wouldn't do? Uh, but Abu Bakr says, just do it anyway. So a so Quran is compiled and is stored uh, under uh, Hafsa's bed. Again, if I get the, the the name of the wife wrong, I'm sorry. That's that's uh, my fault. I don't remember the exact name. So 20 years go by. Uh, Uthman comes along and says, "No, actually, I want a um, a new compilation because we've got these warriors from different uh, parts of our empire, and they're going to fight up in Azerbaijan, and they like Muslims physically come to blows with each other because Muslims from uh, the Hijaz area, which is the central part of the Arab Peninsula, you know, the the Mecca Medina part, go up north towards Azerbaijan, and they meet Arabs from the Damascus." Syria, uh, northern Iraq uh, sort of area. And those guys have a completely different way of reciting the same verses. And they actually come to physical blows. And um, the Muslims at that battle, uh, apparently, according to Islamic traditions and sources, 70 followers were killed of the, uh, of the Prophet, and among them were many reciters. So the recitation of the Quran was lost. So Uthman comes along and says, okay, uh, assemble a dialect of, or assemble a reading of the Quran, and if there is any disagreement between the four of you, so there's like four different people, including Zaid ibn Tabit, make the compilation. If there is any disagreement between you, use the Qurayshi dialect, the Qurayshi dialect of Arabic. 
Well, hang on a second. Arabic, as a language, did not have dialectical differences in the written script until the 8th century. We're talking, this is the 7th century we're talking about. Meaning that the vowelizations, the diacritical markings that you need in order to create a written dialect of Arabic didn't exist back then. So how could anybody have known that it was written in the Qurayshi dialect? It's impossible. The traditions themselves are self-contradictory. The Qur'an is self-contradictory. The, the, uh, the Sirah is self-contradictory. Everything that we know about Islam is self-contradictory. So it stands to reason that if you look at the, uh, the prophet, the so-called prophet of Islam, the story around him is also contradictory. And indeed, once you start digging and you start looking, you realize that everything that we know about him is not from first-hand sources. It's, or at least not from first-hand Arabic and Islamic sources. It's from much later. The first accounts that we have um, about someone carrying the name or the title of Muhammad uh, comes from uh, fragments of the chart of Jacob of Edessa in what, around about 641 AD, something like that. Uh, or you know, maybe a bit, no, it's a bit later than that, sorry. And then there's uh, a reference to something called the Tayaye of Muhammad by Thomas the Presbyter in 640 AD. And um, there are uh, other references to someone who created or led a great rebellion uh, of Arabs against the Sassanids and the Byzantines sometime in the early uh, 7th century. Now this is, this is fascinating because what this means is that while the Muhammad of faith did not exist in the real world. And that's, that's the, the conclusion that scholars are increasingly coming to. Um, the Muhammad of history existed, but in a very different form than the Muhammad of faith. This isn't a problem that we as Christians have. Christians don't have this issue. The Muhammad, the, excuse me, <laughs> yeah, right. The, the Jesus of the Gospels is very, very much the same person as the Jesus of history. Jesus, historically speaking, the historical Jesus, is attested by even atheist scholars and historians as the single most fundamentally important person in all of human history. And there is better documentary evidence for his existence as he was depicted in the Gospels, as he was seen by early Christians, than there is for anybody else before him. There is probably better evidence that Jesus existed and that he did who he did he did what he did than there was for Alexander the Great. You could probably argue I mean you could make the argument I've seen it made I think before by maybe John C. Wright, uh, possibly the, the, the finest science fiction author alive today, um, that the Jesus of history is better attested to than Julius Caesar himself. And I have the complete works of Julius Caesar written in his own hand and translated through the, you know, the last 2,000 years sitting in my Kindle library. So when we say that Jesus is attested to, that he was a real man, that he was the right man in the right place at the right time, in the, doing the right thing at the right time, we're not lying. That's the truth. That's what historians themselves, archaeologists themselves, can tell us from historical data. Muslims cannot make any such claim about Muhammad. So who was this guy, Muhammad? Well, you have to throw out all of the existing um, sources. You have to throw out Islamic traditions because they are not reliable. And that's becoming increasingly clear. Even Muslims are beginning to realize that their own traditions are not reliable, which is a scary thought for them. So once you throw that out, and once you start looking at the evidence and the data in a more historically rigorous way, what do you see? Well, let's set some background first. Let's take a look at the uh, Arab world in sort of 620 or thereabouts. Um, excuse me. 
this is around the time, this is the, this is the reign of Emperor uh, Chosroes or Khosrau II of the Sasanian Empire. The Sasanian Empire has reached its zenith, its peak of power, influence, and territory in 620 AD. What happened um, effectively in the region was that this is about 600 years after Jesus died. So in that time, uh, a very strong series of cults uh, of Nestorian Christians has had sprung up in the region. Now, the Nestorians rejected the, the divinity of Jesus. They rejected the idea that man and God were um, united in one person. And they said that uh, basically Jesus was a mighty man, but just a man. And they were expelled from the uh, mainstream of the Christian world after the, the Council of Nicaea, in which the doctrine of the Trinity was established. Now, as far as the doctrine of the Trinity goes, um, I myself am just a non-denominational, uh, what you might call Niceno-Constantinian Christian, which is to say I don't much care about the doctrine of the Trinity. It doesn't have any significant bearing on my views. Um, I do not worship, I do not follow a religion called Trinitarianism. That is not my faith. I am not a Trinitarian. I am a Christian. I follow my Lord and King, Jesus Christ. I do not care about what people say about whether there's a Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, or, you know, if you want to be irreverent, Daddy, Junior, and Spook, right? <laughs> if, you, yeah, if, if you remember that old joke about um, the nervous pastor who drank vodka before his, uh, his first homily. Anyway, um, these Christians exist in the Arab region. They're very, they're very much thriving in that area. In fact, there are a number of Gnostic Nestorian sects which argue that uh, Jesus was a, uh, an Orthodox Jew and therefore subscribed to rabbinical Mosaic law and uh, was a man. And one of those cults was the Ebionite sect, which was very, very common in the Arab Peninsula and in uh, Northern Arabia, you know, towards uh, the area of what we now know of as uh, Iraq and Syria. Now, during this time, Emperor Khosrau II uh, married a quite beautiful woman, apparently, named uh, Shirin, uh, and I think it was his second wife, uh, or something like that, and she was an Ebionite. And it is quite likely that um, Khosrau himself converted to Ebionitism. Now, Ebionitism uh, was a, a, a splinter of mainline Christianity, or I mean, it wasn't even mainline. It was a splinter of the Gnostic sects, which said, as I, as I stated before, that um, Jesus was a man, and that he was an Orthodox Jew, and accepted all of the old rabbinical laws as still extant. Um, and that religion began to spread throughout the Persian Empire. At the same time, the Persians had mounted a very, very effective campaign against uh, Emperor Augustus Heraclius of the Byzantines and uh, had conquered vast amounts of Byzantine territory. I mean, had pushed the Byzantines right the way back, uh, straight out of um, the Levant, straight out of Egypt, all the way back to um, Anatolia. I mean, they, they, they'd actually captured much of central Anatolia and uh, had come basically right up to the gates of Constantinople and had put Byzantium itself under siege. So, that's in 620 AD, and that's, you know, the absolute maximum extent of power. But, in the process of doing so, Emperor Khosrau greatly uh, overextended his empire's finances, his own treasury, and his uh, military. And in the, in the build-up toward these, these wars, um, the emperor assigned a number of um, sort of local generals or local warlords to maintain the peace uh, in the area and to uh, kind of look after his subjects and his uh, subjugated dominions. Of particular interest are the Arab uh, Lachmids, and the Ghassan, the, the Ghassanids. 
Now, these are two opposing groups of people. Um, I covered them very briefly in my uh, Domain Query podcast from earlier this week, which was all about uh, the missing Arab armies. The Lakhmids were conquered and, and you know, utterly uh, routed by the Sassanids. And uh, their city of uh, Hira, I think, was pretty much wiped out. And parts of it were used to construct uh, Kufa in what is now Iraq. The Ghassanids were Christian subjects of the Byzantines. And the Ghassanids and the Lakhmids had always been kind of at war with each other and uh, contested their lands with each other. Now, one of the possible scenarios of the historical Muhammad uh, now starts to come to light because in sort of the 6, what, 610, uh, 607, uh, around about that area, sometime between 602 and 610, something like that, I think. Um, I'll put a link up to the, the video, by the way. Everything I'm getting is from a video by Mel from Sneakers Corner, and he's uh, he did a, a long, an hour-long video with Jay Smith um, concerning the true identity of Muhammad, and he thinks he's narrowed it down. Um, it's a fascinating video and well worth watching in full. I'll also post up links to books where you can get some insights into all the stuff that I'm telling you about uh, the, 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 the impact of Ebionitism and um, its influence on the Sasanian Empire, um, most, most specifically uh, Emmett Scott's uh, The Impact of Islam, which is a phenomenal book. I mean, very, very highly recommended. So, if you look at what's going on at that time, uh, Khosrau basically has um, a warlord in the Hira area, and this guy is in command of a group of Arabs called the Tayaye, um, and he exists somewhere in uh, southwestern Iraq, you know, towards the borders of Iraq, in fact. And um, the the idea here is that uh, this this Muhammad was given command over like 30 villages and tribes and uh, Muhammad was not in fact a name which makes sense because Muhammad as a name doesn't really enter into Arabic until much much later uh, you know well past the death of the so-called Muhammad uh, it doesn't happen until like you know onwards into um, sort of the end of the seventh century uh, this Muhammad is a king and of, of some note and renown. He's a warrior king. So he has command over all these tribes, these, these 30-odd villages. Um, he goes to battle against, um, against somebody in the, the Battle of Dikar, which is actually historically attested, and it's mentioned in the Quran, uh, sorry, not in the Quran, in, in, um, in the traditions. In the hadith and the um, in the tafsir, I think. And uh, in this in this version of it, he loses and he is forced to flee. And this this version of Muhammad uh, flees to um, the Nabataean sanctuaries and is taken in by the Nabataeans. And then he rebuilds his power base, comes back, and takes over the tribes of the um, the Hira area where he was powerful, and mounts a rebellion against the Sasanians in about 618 AD, and that's attested in the Hispanic Chronicle of 754, and uh, there's a Byzantine Arab Chronicle which says that he was born of a most noble tribe of that people, he was a very prudent man and a foreseer of very many future events, and that's in 741 to 754, and um, he... Uh, Muhammad, the first king of the Arabs, began to reign according to the fragments of the chart of Jacob of, of, of Edessa. And uh, the man in question apparently was named Iyas ibn, ibn, uh, ibn Kabisa al-Tai. Uh, I obviously have no capacity whatsoever to pronounce Arabic, but uh, that's the guy. That's the historical Muhammad. Now, how is it that he rose to power and mounted a takeover of so much territory. Well, again, remember the historical context. The Sasanians and the Byzantines are mauling each other to death. 
um, in the winter of 622, uh, Augustus Heraclius begins probably one of the most remarkable comeback campaigns in all of human history. Uh, from 622 to 628, he goes on an absolute rampage against the Sasanians, and he simply wipes out army after army and pushes the Sasanians back to their borders, reclaims most of his lost territory, reclaims the Levant, reclaims Jerusalem, reclaims the True Cross. Okay, all of this stuff happens in exactly the time frame that Muhammad is, the, you know, the, the, the mythical Muhammad, uh, mounted his, um, uh, his hijra, his, his pilgrimage, uh, away from, you know, he had to flee from one place to another. And it's interesting, if you look at the depiction of the hijra in the Quran, it's very, very similar to the exodus of Moses from Egypt and the entry of Jesus Christ to Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Uh, on top of that, when you look at the profoundly Nabataean and Persian influences on the very earliest aspects of Islam, you quickly realize that there's something very funky going on here. All the original Qiblas of the original mosques are pointing towards Petra, pretty much, and with astonishing degrees of accuracy. Um, the Umayyads, who supposedly came to power, you know, after the, uh, the supposed reign of the Rashiduns, uh, the rightly guided uh, caliphs, there's very little evidence that the Rashiduns actually existed. The first four rightly guided caliphs, there's very little, if anything, in the historical record that says these people existed. Uh, the Umayyads who come to power, on the other hand, are Persians. These, uh, sorry, um, the Umayyads who come to power are Arabs. The Abbasids who follow after them are Persians. Um, the Umayyads, however, are based way up north. They're too far up north. They, if the origins of the Islamic Empire were in Mecca and Medina, then why is it the Umayyads based themselves in Damascus? And why is it that Abd al-Malik, who is responsible for so much of what we consider to be modern Islam, uh, basically built the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem rather than in Mecca? And why did he build it with an inscription in there basically saying that God is not three but one? Uh, and Jesus is his prophet. Okay, now tie all of that up with the fact that the Arab armies that went on their conquering rampage could not have done so without Persian help. Uh, as I said in my Domain Query podcast, the Arabs were not, and still are not fundamentally to this day, shock assault fighters. They are raid fighters. They are tribal. They fight according to dictates of tribe and necessity. They do not fight under dictates of nation. Um, this, the, the Persians and the Byzantines, on the other hand, excelled at shock warfare. That was their thing. That was really what they were good at. The Byzantines took their uh, inheritance of shock warfare from the Romans, and the Persians had had it since, well, pretty much the days of Alexander the Great, uh, when they realized what true uh, assault troops could do. So, in this, in the middle of this epic historical tussle, you have this king who has, you know, pretty significant heft. I mean, he has 30 tribes under his command. And he sees that these two great superpowers are basically mauling each other to death. And Augustus Heraclius wins his war against the Persians. He goes back to uh, he, he, he returns to Jerusalem with the True Cross. He goes back up to Constantinople, or Byzantium. And he thinks it's all done. It's all done and dusted. He's going to leave just outposts of troops to prevent the Persians from coming back. He knows that his, 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 excuse me, his enemy is defeated. Uh, he doesn't have anything more to do. Into the vacuum steps this guy, Muhammad, this, this king, with the title of Muhammad, who's actually named, as I said earlier, Iyas ibn Kabisa al-Ta'i, or uh, as he was nicknamed in uh, Sahih Bukhari, Ibn Abi Kabsha. So, this guy sees his opportunity. 
this guy realizes that he has some powerful backing uh, from the Nabataean merchants and from uh, the, the, you know, he, he may, he was probably, because he was a Lachmid, he was probably an Ebionite or an Astorian Christian himself. He sees that he has powerful backing from tribes of Nestorian Christians who do not like the Trinitarian Christians from the Byzantine side. They don't want to be part of that. They want to believe in Jesus as a mortal man. They want to believe in God as one, uh, not three. They want to believe uh, in a very different aspect of, or a very different reading and understanding of Scripture than what we consider to be accurate and correct today. So, what do they do? What does he do? He mounts up and starts a war, a rebellion, as, as Christian chroniclers have stated, against the Sasanians. And he conquers, and he takes over. And he puts his headquarters not in Mecca, which is like, I mean, Mecca is completely inconsequential, and so is Medina, by the way. Medina is totally inconsequential as a trading outpost and a, and a and a, a military fortification, but he concentrates instead in the great centers of civilization up north, in Damascus, in Jerusalem, in uh, Baghdad, or as we call it, or as it was known back then, Ctesiphon, uh, in um, in all the uh, in all the great Persian uh, territories of the time. He takes over territory after territory of the Persians. He starts incorporating Persian military units and tactics and strategies into his own warfighting techniques. He starts expanding his empire outwards, and he conquers and conquers and conquers, because there's nothing left there to stop him. There's no, there's no army formidable enough to stop him. The Byzantines are exhausted. They can't fight anymore. The Persians, uh, after the death of King Khosra, of Emperor Khosra II, have no strong leader. I mean, it was basically, I think, his grandson, Yazdegerd III, who uh, surrendered the empire, and that was the end of the Sasanians, and that was by the middle of the 7th century. So, um, you have this conquering force that spreads out in the midst of a massive power vacuum. Now, they quickly realize, because, you know, Arabs are primarily a nomadic people, um, especially when they have taken over, uh, when, when they have incorporated Bedouin tribesmen and uh, nomadic armies, um, they quickly realize that they don't really have what it takes to rule over a territory like this, which is packed full of Christians and Jews, especially Christians, and is very much an urbanized territory. Um, they don't have the skills necessary to administer an empire. Uh, so they need to turn over the administration of that empire to Jews and Christians, especially Christians. But there's a problem. Christians will not accept a bunch of, you know, pagan idol-worshipping camel humpers, to put it very uncharitably, but that's the truth, uh, trying to rule over them. They will only accept people who, the, who they believe have come from a direct prophetic line and who have a scripture to offer them. So, along comes Abdel Malik, who, you know, has observed, who, who has been born into all of this, and he understands the needs of administration of an empire. He comes along, and in 691, he builds the citadel of uh, the Dome of the Rock. And the, 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 the mosque itself is, uh, the, the inscription, I think, inside of the Dome of the Rock is completed in 704. The Dome of the Rock is positioned to look directly down at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the holiest site in all of Christendom. Inside the Dome of the Rock is an inscription that says, uh, O people of the... I'm, I'm paraphrasing heavily, but... O people of the book, uh, do not be deceived as to your scriptures. Do not say there, is, there, are, there are three, but only one, for God is one, and Jesus is his prophet. Notice that Muhammad isn't mentioned at all. Funny that. This is 70 years after the death of Muhammad, supposedly, you know, the mythical Muhammad, and he's not mentioned in... The, the, the greatest monument that Islam has to him at that time. Moreover, all of the mosques are still pointing in the direction of Petra. All of the, the, the directions of prayer are pointing to Petra. The concept of the Hajj is a Nabataean concept. The concept of the, the Kaaba, the black stone of the Kaaba, is a, a Nabataean concept. All of these 
religious underpinnings come from the Nabataeans. Where, why did they come from the Nabataeans? Probably because this king, Muhammad, ran off to take shelter with the Nabataeans and gained um, uh, influence and backing from the Nabataeans, financial backing, because the Nabataeans wanted uh, their trade routes to be undisturbed. And probably this guy, Muhammad, promised them that their trade would not be touched and that he would provide safe passage and uh, stable trading uh, access to the Nabataeans, which because of the long war between the Byzantines and the Sassanids, the Silk Route uh, through what was originally Persia and into Istanbul, you know, what is now Istanbul, you know, through Byzantium and into Europe, that was all shut off. So by having a backer there who promised to restore the historic access to that land route, which is much cheaper, um, oh, sorry, is, is, is much shorter than having to go all the way around the Arab Peninsula and into the Mediterranean and all that. It's much quicker and, and, and simpler to do that. The Nabataeans were probably ensuring, looking out for their own interests. And this king, Muhammad, repaid them by uh, dedicating parts of his early sort of religion, uh, empire-binding religion, to their practices. On top of this, you have the influence of the Nestorian heresies, which combine to uh, create a doctrine borrowed heavily from the Nabataeans. Their god is Allah, which uh, is derived from the generic name for uh, the Nabataean god, Ilaha. Uh, Ilaha is actually uh, the generic name for their, their primary god, which is uh, Dushara, I think. Dushara has a wife named Alat. These gods become part of the new Islamic pantheon, but they're they're evolving they're, they're they're changing over time because they realize the needs of the empire and they realize the need for a coherent and cohesive arab identity because they are usurpers in what used to be persian or byzantine christian territory so they need a coherent religious identity a coherent national identity and that is precisely what abdul malik creates and that is precisely what subsequent revisions uh, maintain and that is precisely what Arabs within the Abbasid uh, Empire uh, promulgate, because the Abbasids are Persians. They come back in, they, they take over again from the Umayyads, they, they destroy the Umayyad Caliphate. Um, there's a massive power struggle between the two of them, and there is a political struggle which results in Qiblas pointing in all kinds of directions, in very strange ways. So now what you have is a king who saw an opportunity, took it, and was subsequently redacted and revised back into history by the needs of an administrative burden. And the result that we have today is the religion of Islam, which worships the wrong man from the wrong time, in the wrong place, doing the wrong thing in the wrong way. Can you see now why Islam has such a huge problem with maintaining the truth? And can you see now why people like me predict that Islam will probably see its foundation shattered within our lifetimes. It's already happening. It's already, it's already underway. Um, I am very optimistic about the future in that respect. I do believe that uh, we will see Islam exposed and rooted out as the heresy that it is, um, and that many Muslims will start looking around for alternatives. And I, I want to close, as always, with a, an invitation, an open invitation to Muslims. Come home. We have what you're looking for. We have everything you're looking for. You want a scripture that is eternal, unchanging, sent down, and complete. We don't have a book. We don't make those claims about our Bible. We do make those claims about our man. Is Jesus eternal? Yes. Has Jesus ever changed? No. So is, is Jesus unchanging? Yes. Was Jesus sent down? Yes. Was Jesus, is Jesus complete? Yes. We have what you're looking for. Come on home. Come back to us. Come back to Jesus Christ. Come back to your Lord and King. And understand that everything that you worship today is a redaction, a revision, a pastiche of various sources glued together for an imperial ideology. 
and don't subject yourselves to it anymore. I'm going to wrap up there. Um, gone on quite long enough. Um, I know this was a bit disjointed, but uh, hopefully the next podcast will be a bit cleaner. This has been Didactic Mind episode 47, um, The Nameless One. And I am your host, the Didact, signing off.